Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. My name is Coleman Hughes. I'm a writer and host of the Conversations with Coleman podcast. In today's world, we can't escape discussions about race. It's an obsession that's taken center stage in our culture. But I can't help but wonder, why? Why is our society so fixated on this topic? In my new book, The End of Race Politics, I argue for a return to the ideals that inspired the American civil rights movement. I reveal how our departure from the colorblind ideal has led to a new era marked by fear, paranoia, and resentment. By fixating on race, we lose sight of what it means to be truly anti-racist. I believe that a colorblind society is possible, and in the end of race politics, I provide the intellectual tools to make it happen. Join me on this journey to rethink the conversation. The end of race politics is available for presale now. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Munira Mirza. Munira Mirza is a British public policy analyst and cultural commentator. She served as the Deputy Mayor for Education and Culture of London under Boris Johnson when he was mayor, and later served as Director of the Number 10 Policy Unit under Johnson when he was Prime Minister. In this episode, we talk about Munira's early days as a Marxist, her interest in art and museums, her views on Brexit, her views on multiculturalism in the UK the Israel-Hamas war and jihadism in general, and much more. So without further ado, Munira Mirza. Okay, Munira Mirza, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, we, I guess we met at the conference uh, in January, right? That, that must have been the first time we met. I'd been aware of you before that, but we had a great conference that I would describe as kind of comparing notes and visions about race and inequality and our conversation about race across the pond in America uh, versus the UK. And there were some very interesting similarities, very interesting differences, interesting synergies between people like myself, Thomas Chatterton Williams, John McWhorter, and Glenn Lowry, who my whole audience will be aware of them as uh, Camille Foster, American commentators on American race obsession and and so forth. And people like yourself, um, Inaya Falara Iman, who I had on my show, Aisha Kambi, who I've had on my show, Africa Brooke. And so forth. Maybe, uh, maybe start there. Like, what was your view of that conference? How did you feel about it? And what did you come away with? It was such a great event, and I remember because I first started thinking about it when I left government, and I had been originally inspired to do it by reading about a similar conference that had taken place in America, actually, uh, I think in the 1980s, and it was a, a group of African American conservatives who organized a private discussion amongst themselves about the meaning of race and race politics in the U.S. And then uh, later, uh, later on, I think it was possibly a year or two years ago, there was a, a kind of follow-up version of that conference, which Glenn and uh, a few others uh, were involved in. And I, I thought it'd be great to do something like that in the UK. And I got talking to Anaya and, and we invited you and, and John and Glenn. And, and 
I originally thought when we invited you that you guys are so busy and you're so big in America and you all talk to each other and why would you come over to little old England and, you know, we're just a tiny island. And what was really gratifying was that when you came, how much you guys seemed to enjoy it as well. Oh, we loved it. Because I think what what we discovered is, A, there are lots of people out there who share our views on race politics and who perhaps don't have a space or a place they can talk about it in their normal daily life. So just coming together and being open and honest and, and talking through some of these issues was great. But also just that what we have in the UK, we are quite different, but there are lots of similarities as well. And we have a lot to learn from each other. And actually, we in the UK have a chance to influence the discussion as well. It's not all that we're not all, only downstream from, from the US. And sometimes, the debate about race in, in the UK feels a little bit like it's just imported and we, we're being kind of hit by this tsunami of, of uh, kind of racial identity politics. And, and I think we actually realised in that event that actually we can take part in this conversation. It is a global conversation and we've got the right people in the room. And it was, it was fantastic that you could come. Yeah, no, I, I don't think we viewed it as a, a small side quest at all. It was like a highlight very much. I could speak for myself at least. Let's talk a little bit about your path here. You've uh, you have a very interesting backstory based on where you were born and um, and your your parents' story as immigrants and how you you're seen as uh, you're, you're talked about in the media as uh, an unconventional Tory, right? Uh, someone with a, not the stereotypical background of a Tory. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and if whatever way in which you connect your upbringing to who you've ended up becoming and, and what you've ended up standing for as an adult. Yeah. So in terms of my politics today, actually, I perhaps like lots of people find it difficult to think what, what, what label do I have? Where do I where do I see myself politically? And I think I've always talked about myself or thought about myself more as a liberal than attached to, to a political party, although obviously I work for a conservative government. But my journey politically has been quite an unusual one. I started off very much on the left and over time, you know, just by things that I've read and people I've met, I've my politics has evolved. And the things that have been constant, I guess, are an interest in questions of freedom, questions of culture, and the extent to which we see each other as individuals and that, that the importance of the individual in politics has, for me, always been a fairly constant thing, despite my changing views on, on lots of other things and policy issues. I started off, I, you know, I'm the child of immigrants from Pakistan. Uh, I grew up in a town called Oldham in the north of England, which is uh, one of the former mill towns of the country. It's a kind of old industrial area, now deindustrialized, quite deprived, and uh, has a large immigrant uh, population, large Pakistani population. So I grew up with race and racial division being just a kind of normal fact of daily life. And on some level, I'm sure that that has been one of the things that's, that's driven me to be interested in this area, because it's something that I've experienced and seen. And uh, I've always been interested in it. It's not the only thing I've been interested in. I have in politics and in, in my work in government, I've had lots of other areas that I've been passionate about. But, but race has been something that just from a very young age, I was very conscious of. And I did well in school. I went to um, I went to a comprehensive school. Then I went to Oxford University and studied English literature. And that's when I became interested in politics and ideas. And when I got to my 20s, I was meeting lots of people, mostly from the left, because I didn't know many conservatives in those days. But I was interested in 
particularly the relationship between culture and politics. And uh, I did a PhD. I studied and researched uh, the whole area of multiculturalism and over time just became more sceptical of identity politics and multiculturalism as, a, as an idea in Britain and, and the impact of these ways of thinking on ethnic minorities. And I guess in, in my mind, I thought, you know, the left-wing ideals of treating people equally in law, of not discriminating on the basis of colour, recognising fairness and colour blindness, and these ideas which I had always thought of as being actually quite left-wing ideas, what I realised was that the left had largely abandoned them in favour of this new kind of identity politics. And I had probably a fairer hearing from people on the right and so my political trajectory, you know, the people that I ended up over time uh, getting to know and become familiar with were, were on the right. Although, you know, saying that the part of the left that I was involved in, the people that I knew were also on that journey and also becoming quite sceptical about, about what identity politics was. So is it right that you were a communist at one point? So to clarify, there was an organisation in the 1970s and 80s, the Revolutionary Communist Party. By the time I got to meet those people, the organisation had disbanded, but they had, I guess, retained the Marxist critique and the Marxist analysis. And they had a magazine called Living Marxism, which I read and I um, went to lots of events. And uh, and I'm still friends with lots of the people who were in that network. And that became Spiked Magazine, it became, right? Yeah, people involved with that set Spiked and the set of the Academy of Ideas and some people who might be familiar to your audience, like Claire Fox and Frank Frady and people who are intellectually serious people and who came from a left-wing tradition. And in fact, had a critique of identity politics probably long before it was fashionable way back in the late 90s. And uh, and I was very drawn to what they were arguing because I believed that um, it was absolutely fundamental to social justice in a way, that people were treated equally regardless of their colour. And yet in my life and what I was seeing uh, in the areas that I was working, I, I worked a, a bit in the art sector um, in the beginning of my career. And I thought it was strange that people who were supposedly progressive and left wing were quite comfortable with the idea of almost stereotyping people according to their skin colour and their, their ethnic background. So yeah, my, my kind of, not, my involvement in left wing politics was slightly unusual, but I was interested in ideas and I was interested in an intellectual perspective on on things and um over time I'm, my political journey has been like i said quite unusual and i've moved more towards a kind of liberal mm -hmm. worldview i found some of the most interesting people tend to be former marxists in fact if you go on wikipedia and just type in former marxists you will get like literally over a hundred of some of the most interesting intellectuals from the 20th and 21st century people like Thomas Sowell, Eugene Genovese, the great historian of slavery. I'm um, just tons. Marxism just generated tons of interesting individuals that then left Marxism. What's interesting is you don't really find the reverse. You don't find too many people that become Marxists in their 40s, right? And that's interesting to me. Like, why is it the case that that you see a one-way path from out of Marxism among very interesting and intelligent people, but not not the reverse. Yeah, well, it's something that has something to do with history as well. The Cold War ended, and many people who believed there was an alternative to capitalism, you know, that option seemed very closed. And in fact, it turns out that the majority of the public were not interested in that alternative either. I think what my 
early political life did for me was it forced me to read and it forced me to take seriously analyses of society, which was more than just surface deep. And that's what, and I still would recommend to people interested in politics to read Marx because the Marxist analysis is helpful in some ways. I wouldn't go, uh, I wouldn't accept it wholesale. And obviously Marxism is a political movement and its consequences when it's enacted in history have been devastating. But this idea of trying to understand the movement of capitalism, the way in which economy structures society, structures institutions and things like family and social relationships is a way of trying to make sense of sociology and society. And it's a, it's a great kind of way of, of thinking about the world in using abstract concepts. And, and actually, you know, one of the things I think that's a bit dispersing about universities today and, and political education in universities is it's more akin to activism than an engagement with ideas, even uncomfortable and difficult ideas that you don't agree with. And actually, I spent most of my 20s arguing with people. And in that process of arguing, I figured out what I thought and what I disagreed with. And and there is a tradition on the left, unfortunately, where you take a line and you, you tow the party line and you're not encouraged to disagree. And, you know, thankfully, I was able through the people I knew to really try and tear, tear arguments apart and tear them down and build them up again. And, uh, and that, I think, is really important, but sometimes missing part of our political culture. At this point, I wouldn't even say sometimes. I'd say it's just the exception to the rule. I certainly had that experience at Columbia. So to kind of mirror your experience, I I grew up in a multiracial, unusually diverse town. And, you know, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day and we listened to the I Have a Dream speech. And I really took seriously this idea of treating people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. That seemed to be clearly the best principle to have guiding you when you when you're trying to be an ethical good person. In other words, it didn't seem like we needed innovation from that principle, right? Maybe it works not, pretty well. It's pretty damn good. I don't know what the better alternative is, right? So, and then I got to late high school and, and uh, early college in Columbia, at Columbia in New York, and there was just a totally different ethos taking, kind of taking the local community by storm. This is, this would have been in 2013, 2014, and it's now been shown this was the time when phrases like systemic racism and white guilt, if you look on Google Trends, went from almost non-existent in the popular culture to, to rampant, to widespread. There was a huge push towards telling every kid of color that you are a victim of systematic racism. Doesn't even doesn't matter if you, you're upper middle class. It doesn't matter that you're at an Ivy League school, you're probably, doesn't matter that you're in probably one of the least racist, most sensitive to race zip codes that's ever existed in the history of homo sapiens. You are a victim. You are basically, you know, like a stone's throw away from being a slave and you should act as such, right? You should, you know, interpret every possible statement by a classmate or professor as racist. And in many ways you attain status precisely insofar as you can weaponize your racial identity to to hold white people to account to hold white supremacy to account this was this was, it was an ethos that just swept the world at least the the elite world i think and it seemed profoundly it just seemed profoundly off the mark to me in that it literally created distance between people that would not have been there but for this culture right it's like you're with a white person and you're a person of color 
and there's actually no problems between you as individuals, but you drop this ideology into the mix. And all of a sudden, the fact that this white guy has an opinion on, say, the latest example of police brutality because he read an article. Well, now I'm able to say, well, you just think that because you're a white man, right? And now he's on the defensive thinking, holy shit, am I racist? And you know, I'm angry thinking this guy's a racist. And it's like, it's literally creating micro tears in the social fabric that wouldn't be there if both people came into the conversation thinking, this is Michael and I'm Coleman and we're going to have a conversation as individuals. And sure, maybe, maybe I've experienced certain things as a black person that he hasn't and we can have that conversation. Maybe he's experienced certain things as a white person that I haven't. And that that's the, the kernel of truth to whatever extent there is in this ideology is that like people have different life experiences and sharing that is very interesting. And then it builds a whole mess of ideas on top of that about how now we can't actually relate to each other. We can't, you can't understand me. I can't understand you. We're basically speaking two different languages, living in two different worlds, and we can't bridge that. So we might as well just, I might as well just live in my all black student dorm, which they offer on many campuses because you're wild. It's just wild. Yeah, it it really is. is. Segregation is now seen as a good thing, as a positive, progressive thing. Yeah, it's insane. And in fact, this is a little known fact. The, uh, uh, Kenneth Clark, who is a famous researcher that that did a, the famous doll experiment in Brown versus Board, which was used to to suggest that segregation damaged black kids' self-esteem. And he became a bit of a celebrity academic in, at the time and is a hero of the civil rights movement as a result. When in, in 1970, he was on the board of Antioch College and they started segregating, they started offering, offering segregated dorms. He wrote a piece saying, this is exactly what I fought against in, in Brown versus Board. And he resigned from the board of the college saying, I, I literally fought more than anyone, literally, against segregation in schools. I was the, the, the star witness of Brown versus Board of Education to fight this. And now you're doing it with a different rationale, but it's the same thing. I've always felt like the, the best of multiculturalism is like learning about people from different cultures from a perspective of being able to be on equal footing, not from a perspective of we are two different peoples and and never the twain shall meet kind of a thing. So that's a long winded version of why I relate to what you were describing as your path from the, let's say the intolerant left, the identity politics left to the wherever you would define yourself now, if at all. I think it's interesting how many, the people who speak out against this stuff are often ethnic minorities themselves, partly because they have a bit more license to, they can't be denounced as in a straightforward way. Says, as, we as, have as, the melanin force field. Exactly. Although it doesn't work in all cases. And, you know, there are plenty of examples where you get called an Uncle Tom or a coconut because you're not ethnic enough. But I think we experience it on a visceral level. We have been, we have personally been treated according to the color of our skin by nice people, people who want to be progressive and fair. And so that we can see, despite the good intentions, that it has a negative effect. And, you know, I hope that over time, and you know, the conference we, we talked about earlier, it was part of this effort to try and encourage more people to say, hang on a minute, what is this stuff? This isn't in our interests. In fact, if anything, it's making things worse. So I think that's quite important. When I started out looking at this issue, I made a program for Radio 4 called The Business of Race. It was, I think it was in 2005. And it was a a two-part series looking at diversity training in the UK. So we're talking about nearly 20 years ago. And diversity training had 
become an industry in America. And it was just starting to come to the UK at that time. And on the surface, it looks like a really benign thing. Why wouldn't you want your workplace to be more diverse? And why wouldn't you want to teach people, your employees, about how to be able to navigate differences in colour and in religion and ethnicity and so on. And when we started making the programme, I remember my producer at the time said, you know, we want to do this in a very balanced and neutral way. And, uh, you know, we want to show the positives and, you know, and so on of, of, of this kind of training. And then he went on one of the courses. It was a course that had been brought over by an American provider and the trainer, uh, he was a white woman, American woman, started dividing up the group and uh, according to blue eyes and brown eyes. And this was meant to mirror a kind of racialized context. And when she did this training, she was absolutely horrible to one group and absolutely delightful and charming to the other. And the whole idea was that you were meant to get a sense of what it was like being a minority or being treated as a victim group. Now, this is in the workplace, remember, these people who work together. And my producer, who went on this course for the day, came back horrified. He said, I had no idea this is what diversity training looked like in America. And it's coming here. And he had been almost semi-radicalized by the experience. He said, this is terrible. People were crying at the end of the day. And they were, you know, being asked to think about how they were racist. And, you know, people, nice people who uh, thought that they did treat people fairly, but had been told that actually they carried this original sin in them. And when I made the program, I remember the reaction was, well, that's America. And yeah, they, you know, they take things a bit to extremes, but fundamentally this stuff is okay. And what we see 20 years on is that all that stuff now that younger people are coming up with microaggressions and their privilege and their sense of grievance, that comes partly as a result of this shift in way of thinking about diversity and the way in which in workplaces and universities and in schools, people are being retrained to think of race as being uh, a kind of an original sin or an original a sense of victimhood that they can't shake off and they have to deal with it almost. Uh, it, it was a combination of kind of very bureaucratic training along with therapy. It was like a kind of therapeutic intervention and people had to dig deep into their souls. I know John McWhorter talks about the new kind of anti-racism becoming racism as a kind of religion, a woke religion, which I think you know is a good characterization of it. But it's also this weird kind of self-help, therapeutic kind of language that you see in race where you can never fix the social problems. All you can do is change your mindset and uh, feel guilty or feel oppressed and you have to deal with that emotion. And, and that's the over 20 years. It's been a long gestation, but we're seeing the results of it. But back in 2005, it was still a fairly new thing. And we didn't see, most people couldn't see what it was and we're buying in this training. And now it's just, you know, you see it in all sorts of workplaces. I mean, not always to that extreme, but the kind of the kernel in it is, is there often. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that it was there as far back as 2005. You know, we've seen, we saw an explosion of that. I think to some extent, it's beginning to wane from a peak. But in 2020 and 2021, the the number of corporations that were hiring so-called diversity experts to come in for could be $30,000, you know, like people really were making quite a, quite a bit of money doing this and still are to do these kinds of exercises, uh, which 
you know, have been looked into from a social science perspective, and there's no evidence to suggest that they lower bias. There's some evidence to suggest they actually lead to a backlash uh, because people don't like a random person with no familiarity with the office or with them coming in and telling them that they're racist. And in a way, it is racist to do that because you're telling them that simply based on their race, right? You haven't observed them being racist in the workplace. You haven't, you may not even know their names. You probably learned their names today. And you're telling them, I can tell you because of your race that you're racist. People don't react particularly well to that if it has any lasting impact at all. In fact, I remember my orientation at Columbia, they had us do this exact same exercise, not with eye color, but they actually just separated us by race. They had a whole room of people, black people go in that corner, Hispanic people go in that corner. I'm both black and Hispanic. So right off the bat, I have to like choose an identity, which is a little annoying, but white people over there, Asians over there. And I remember thinking whatever this exercise is intending to do, what it has now done is make me acutely aware of my race, which I wasn't two seconds ago. Like I'm, I'm always vaguely aware that I am a person of a particular race, but I'm generally not intensely aware of it unless the situation is making me intensely aware of it. And then all of these potential paranoias and anxieties come on board that don't need to be there all the time. And in fact, life is more more um, light when it's not there. And now I'm like, okay, well, everyone is now seeing me as the black guy and et cetera. That's, that's not necessarily how I want to meet an individual for the first time. I want them to be like, Hey, here's my name. Here's my individual story. And so, yeah, this is a, this is an incredibly pernicious, pernicious practice that has been normalized, especially in the corporate world and in universities. Now I've talked to CEOs of companies that would agree with everything you and I just said in the past 15 minutes. But then they have the follow-up question, okay, well, what do I do, right? Like I can't, almost legally, I can't have, have no diversity <laughs> program. But what actually do I do if I, if I oppose this way of thinking about race, but practically I do need to have some kind of, you know, I have a company with 500 employees, say, right? And I have an HR department and I can be drowned in lawsuits yeah. quite easily that may be frivolous, but are not frivolous to me. So what what kind of advice practically do you, do you come across these kinds of situations people asking you this advice and what do you what advice do you give them? Yeah, and and also I've worked in institutions. So yeah. you know, I, I mentioned earlier I've worked in the cultural sector and I've been on the boards of uh, arts organizations and there's a, always pressure to have diversity especially in arts and, organizations. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, we can talk about museums yeah. Um, yeah. in particular, but there's a political pressure as well and often from staff, you know, we must do something about there are disparities in in the cultural sector in terms of recruitment, in terms of the artists that they show. And uh, as you said, there is a bureaucracy and a legal framework now in the UK and the US, which has essentially laid down the law on what businesses and organisations must do and creates the possibility of them being challenged, getting lawsuits. And that risk, that fear overrides everything else. So it overrides common sense sometimes. So there are plenty of organisations that, that might well not have high recruitment of a particular ethnic group, but there could be all sorts of reasons for that. So in the art sector, it's not a very well-paid sector. And for a lot of aspirational immigrant families, African, Caribbean, uh, British Asian, they want their kids to go into high paid professions like medicine and law and accountancy. And those parental expectations influence career choices. So it's not surprising to me that lots of those people 
or aspirational white working class people do not go and work in a museum for the minimum wage. The first question from your Nigerian parents is going to be, how are you going to make money doing exactly, that yeah. since you're eight years old? It's not to say that there aren't people from those backgrounds. You know, I went and worked in the art sector, but but it's that is a barrier. That's a factor. And in fact, when I was in my, in, uh, I think around mid 2000s, I published a report by uh, an artist curator who was a, a, a black woman, very brilliant curator and, and writer. And uh, she said, look, I'm, you know, I'm kind of fed up of all these diversity schemes for black artists that, that focus on our skin colour and almost ghettoise us into this separate box. When the real problem, if you want to get work as a curator, is you have to do all these unpaid internships. And how the hell are we supposed to live if you can't afford to pay your rent? And so if you're from a poor background, and most ethnic groups in Britain are immigrants, therefore they are generally more financially disadvantaged than the, the white majority. Um, that's the thing you want to solve. And, you know, I, I produced some work and, and actually we helped change the debate around unpaid internships. So we have fewer of those now, if any, in the cultural sector in the UK. And that's the sort of, you know, that's where the Marxist critique is helpful, looking at the structural reasons why there are these disparities and trying to remove them. But just talking about white institutions being racist misses the point often. And it does that thing of, of blaming a sort of a so-called oppressive class for their attitudes and their values and assumes that they, you know, want to treat people badly rather than looking, what's going on here? Why would this group not go into the art sector rather than this other highly paid profession? And it's just often it's a quite lazy assumption that it's racism that's the reason. Um, and, you know, so I, I think, you know, the, the cultural sector is a good example of that. I mean, your point, your question about what, what do I tell CEOs to do? I mean, Personally, I think HR departments are part of the problem because, you know, they are almost set up to create processes and procedures and rules that try to minimise lawsuits. But they often formalise what should be informal relationships, even in a workplace. You need people to be able to develop informal connections with each other, to have conversations. And sometimes HR departments are worrying so much about the risk of things going wrong that they clamp down on that very informal socialization that, that needs to take place. And it happens in universities and schools as well. So defund HR is the, is the solution? <laughs> yeah, that can be the new call of the, the true anti-racist, defund the HR departments. I mean, I, I also think, you know, that we probably, we probably need CEOs to be a little bit more courageous as well in saying, you know, some of the, so for example, the kind of the phenomenon of staff network or the online chat board where employees express their political opinions freely, but in a way that is dismissive of anyone who might disagree with them. And then they start saying, well, you know, you can't say that because that will cause offense. You know, either you have complete freedom everyone can say what they like and you respect that and that's just part of the culture or people are don't bring their whole self to work and don't bring their political opinions and you respect that too but you have to be consistent and sometimes what you see the dynamic in organizations is those who claim to be on the side of social justice and progress and identity politics want their view to be dominant and don't want to really deal with disagreement or dissent it's a bit of a you know generalization but that that's the tendency is always in favour of this kind of let's let's um, you know talk about the victims mm. and and I think sometimes CEOs just have to say you know we have a policy we have a way of doing things and be able to push back a little bit when it becomes unhealthy. Yeah, the CEO of Coinbase kind of famously did this during 2020. I think David Sachs of the All In podcast, the VC 
guy, um, he had a great description of it where, where he was like, yeah, CEO of Coinbase basically said, our mission here, we have a mission here. Our mission here is crypto. If you want to hijack our thing for other missions, like those are great missions. Go do those missions. But we're building a ship here to go to a particular destination. You can't reroute the ship towards other causes, right? That's not that, that's not what we're going to do. And, and Netflix also had a, a, a pretty good statement on this. She's like, maybe you're not built for Netflix. Maybe you're not right for Netflix if you don't think that, if you think all of our content should align with your particular values. Maybe you should go work for somewhere else. And that's leadership, right? Leadership entails sometimes being the bad guy vis-a-vis -vis your employees. And if you if you have tact about it, then it you end up getting respect for it. But I think, uh, yeah, a lot of people aren't willing to do that. And look, it's easy for me to say as a not the CEO of any big company, I'm sure it's difficult, but that I think is what's necessary at some level. Yeah. And often I think by showing that kind of leadership, you find that the activists often only represent really themselves, that there will be a silent majority in any organization where there'll be a kind of sigh of relief that people have just reimposed a sense of order and calm because what I think does happen is that activists are kind of given a bit of a free run and they're allowed to to say, well, my view is right and no one can disagree with me. And everyone's slightly terrified to, to push back. But but that's where the people in charge have to say, actually, we have a purpose and we don't spend 80% of our time in the office arguing with each other about something that's not relevant to the business. I think in universities, it's, it's different because obviously universities, the culture is supposed to be that you disagree. And in fact, in some ways, what you have is a, a complete clamping down of, of real debate. And you need university leaders to say, actually, we, we are happy and we are prepared to have people who say controversial things coming and speaking on campus. And in the UK, we've had some examples now of academics being disinvited, events being cancelled on the basis of a small group of activists protesting very loudly or sending death threats, which amazingly in this day and age happens. And universities at that point have a choice. They can say, if you don't like it, get out. This is not the place for you. Or they can capitulate. And, and in a few cases, they have capitulated. And you know there has been a backlash against that. Because I think if you're saying as an institution, as a university, there are some speakers that might cause offence, we don't, we don't want to allow that. Then students get emboldened with the idea that they can just shut, shut down an opinion they don't like. And I think that's dangerous. That's when you don't have healthy disagreement. It incentivizes more of it. It's kind it certainly of like does, yeah. an well, appeasement, right? <laughs> works, yeah. I mean, if it, if it works, why not keep doing it? Right. And and now you have in, in universities, and I know this because my organization uh, sometimes organizes events with universities, and, it's, and I used to work in one. There is a culture of risk assessment forms, and you have to think about who might turn up and protest. Is there, you know, is there a, a risk to the reputation of the university? And, you know, what is probably some quite sensible questions becomes this culture of inhibition. Like people think, well, maybe I don't need to do this event if it's going to cause some controversy and I have to pay for security. And, 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 you know, that the risk is that it ends up becoming in the UK a bit more as I think it is in America, where it's just really hard to have difficult disagreements. I'm curious, uh, as someone with a background in museums, and I believe you, you were the advisor, arts advisor to the mayor of London, right? Where's all the conservative art? I've always wondered this because anytime you go to any museum, you will see art installations that have descriptions of their meaning, which are vary anywhere from like left to super left. Like it may be intersectional and maybe about feminism, maybe about racism. It's never 
pro-capitalism. It's never... It's never patriotic. No, it's never patriotic. And I'm just curious, like there must be artists who have those leanings. Where is their art? It's such a good question. I've thought about this a lot because, I mean, I don't think most artists don't sort of fit a a neat political category in that way. Uh, Although there have been artists in the past who have said and have identified as, as, as more right wing. Why, why has that changed? I think there is also a, particularly now, there's a kind of culture of self-censorship and whatever opinions people might have, they're quite careful and cautious about not speaking too vocally, partly for the reasons we've discussed that you don't want to be, you don't want a big pile on on social media, you don't want to be cancelled. But it is curious that in the art world, which prides itself on thinking outside the box and thinking the unthinkable and being creative, and that actually there's a great deal of conformity in political in political opinion. And I think it's partly self-censorship. I think it's partly uh, about the kinds of subjects that get funding in the state system. So uh, there's been a real push towards representative art and art that is ethnically diverse or looks at issues like identity politics. So, you know, LGBT art. And that tends to therefore shape the kind of political perspective that that is then produced. In museums, um, I think healthy kind of interest in the history and the kind of social context of objects and paintings and and artworks has become politicised. And some of the labelling that you're seeing in our big institutions, like, you know, Tate is a good example where they've had some criticism for some of the more recent exhibitions where they have, in some cases, brought in artists to give their reflections on an artwork and made some quite spurious claims about what the artist intended or why the artist painted a particular thing. So there was a There was an exhibition of Cezanne paintings uh, a while ago and one label about an artwork talked about, I think, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something to do with, you know, the chair and the the, ob- the object and the painting represented colonialism in some way. And uh, I probably got that, com- you know, factually wrong. But the, but the idea was that in some ways it represented something to do with their particular contemporary preoccupation. And a lot of art historians and art critics just said, what is this, bollocks? There's nothing to do with that. Suzanne didn't think about it's that. It's just a chair. It's, yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's a beautiful it's just, chair. You can kind of make stuff up. <laughs> And it just sounds good. There was another example of a a museum of a Tudor ship, the Mary Rose, I think it was. And um, apparently one of the junior curators had written a label talking about a particular object reflected LGBT concerns. And again, a a critic wrote in the magazine, they'd gone to visit this exhibition. They'd said, what is this? Where is it coming from? It's not even accurate. And it's just the sense in which it becomes a fashion. And those are the things that get elevated by the institution. If you want to build your career in the art and museum world, you'd say the right things, you get noticed, you know, you conform. And there isn't a huge amount of space for critical disagreement about about that way of looking at things. I mean, you could say that lots of art, which is not political, doesn't is not labelled right wing, but it is conservative in a sense. So, you know, if you look at a lot of West End theatre, uh, if you look at musicals and so on, they're not particularly left wing kind of, you know, they're not preoccupied with social justice. So does that make it right wing? I don't know, but it's apolitical, I guess. And so you either have quite apolitical work, which is just about the human condition, and then you have stuff which is more obviously political. You're right, I don't see many, many musicians or writers or or artists who will tackle the kind of taboos of of the left. I definitely see more conservative or 
critical of left-wing orthodoxy. I see more of it in music and movies than I do in art. So like, for example, I don't, there's some movie, famous movies that can be read as kind of conservative, like Christopher Nolan, Batman movies. Like if you, if you, if you look at some of the things Bane says in the last movie, they're indistinguishable from the progressive critique he stands inside of, outside of a prison and says, behind me is a symbol of oppression. And he literally lets all the prisoners out, right? This is the logical endpoint of radical, anti-police, anti-law and order rhetoric. And of course, the law and order needs to be restored. The police are all line up in the city to who are the good guys, right? And sacrifice themselves fighting the criminals, this is not a particularly left-wing message. So you can you can read a lot of other things as kind of conservative, but yeah, I've just I've yet to see the description beside a painting at any museum I've ever been to that is like this painting or the, this piece extols the virtues of capitalism and innovation. Like not even one. Yeah. So on museums, sorry, movies and music, they are highly commercial their production and they're very attuned to what their audiences so maybe that's, believe that's and the it. values of the audience and therefore I think in movies you know the cops usually are the good guys because that's how most people still think of the cops I guess even with all the kind of Black Lives Matter and you know con- concerns about racism within the police there's a sense in which actually the people who are out in the street who are trying to stop crime they're still good right and so I guess and Hollywood's entire history is is based on that demarcation of good versus evil. So you need those things. And I guess they're they're able to respond to the, what their audience is looking for. Whereas museums in the art world, they often only speak to a small clique. And despite all their desire and claim to want to be inclusive, they often don't really re- reflect with the interests of their audience. I noticed this actually during the, the Brexit campaign in 2016, where lots of museums uh, and art galleries produced artwork about the issues coming out of that campaign to, for the UK to leave the EU. And uh, there were some museums that talks uh, about in a very positive way about immigration in the UK, almost as a kind of way of nudging their their public to say, you know, immigration is a good thing. This is not a reason to vote to leave the EU. Therefore, don't don't vote to leave the EU. And lots of museum leaders signed a letter about why the UK should remain in the EU. And it was interesting because those museums didn't feel that they ought to think about or reflect the other side of the argument. So they weren't a place of debate and discussion, really. They weren't particularly interested in why does the public have an interest in leaving the EU. And it was a bit of a missed opportunity to engage with that section of the, the, the public that usually feels disempowered when they go into a museum, doesn't feel that their, their concerns are listened to. And so, you know, but that's that's a kind of, I guess it's that's an elite opinion, which is often in a bubble of its own. And that's what you see sometimes when you see those labels, that there's kind of curators talking to other curators, talking to art critics. And I think they, they have a less rich understanding of the artworks for that reason. What was your opinion on Brexit at the time of the vote? And what's your opinion now? And are those the same? Yeah, I, so I supported the campaign to leave, which I can tell you was not a popular opinion in um, in, the, in the, yeah. the cultural world. And I still do because my belief at the time and still is, is that remaining part of the EU was, a, uh, was not a democratic uh, arrangement in that there are lots of aspects of, of being part of the EU, the lawmaking, which is not subject to democratic processes. So the EU can... Uh, enforce legislation or pass legislation in the UK, which the the UK public can't then overturn. And that seems to me a fairly fundamental aspect of national sovereignty. And for the long term for the country, I 
I thought it was better that, that, that people had the ability to control lawmaking and things like trading relationships and uh, regulations and so on. Uh, and there is this question about immigration, which because we were part of the EU, we weren't able to end the free movement of, of people across the borders. And so, yeah, I, I supported the campaign to leave. I also think there's been a lot of short-term immediate disruption. I would say that everything that's bad is blamed on Brexit by, by some people. And obviously, we've just been through a major global pandemic. The war in Ukraine has, has raised the price of energy and other, other goods. So it's hard to disentangle what's been causing our most recent economic woes. But you know, fundamentally, uh, I think it comes down to democratic sovereignty. And that remains an issue today. You know, that, that remains the, the same issue. It's interesting. You know, I've noticed this tension in America, too, where certainly in the past, let's say, more than four years, really, but especially since Donald Trump tried to overturn the election, the left in America has been the, the left in America has been extolling the virtue of democracy, the sanctity of democracy. How every attack on our democracy is a, is a major threat. But then when so so basically, democracy equals good, like inherently for the left. At least you would think so based on the utterances being made. But then you talk about the topic of immigration, which in America the reason immigration has been outside of democratic control is because we don't have an effective border with Mexico. In Britain, the reason it's been outside of democratic control is because of the EU. You guys have a natural border because you're, you're an island. But in both cases, unique among most major issues, the voters don't decide how many people come to America. That's decided by the state of crises in Central and South America, right? If there's a if there's a famine in Guatemala tomorrow, we're getting an, an influx that we can't stop. And so you would expect the people that like really think democracy is an inherent good and that the people should have control over policy would want a border so that we can, like Canada, choose how many people come here so that it can be responsive to the will of the majority. But I've never heard that argument made, right? It's actually people people would prefer it to be outside of democratic control, even though they, in every other case, would extol the virtue of democracy. Now, if you're someone like my previous guest on this podcast, Garrett Jones, who thinks democracy is not always a good thing, and that sometimes it's good for the elites to have control because the elites choose better policies. He wrote a book called 10% Less Democracy. Then, okay, you can have a consistent position. You can be like, okay, I'm, I'm an economist. I think actually uh, open borders is like good for the economy and the people people on average just like don't understand economics. If that's your view, then at least it's consistent. But it's not really consistent to say that our, our democracy is under attack. The, the voter knows best. We need to empower as many people to be able to vote as possible. N need to get rid of driver's license requirements, voter ID, because that's a tiny barrier for some people to vote. But also voters should not be able to choose who comes to the country. That don't don't get crazy now. <laughs> yeah, I love democracy when it works in my favor and all the issues I care about exactly. are popular. Yeah, and, and actually, you know, in the US, I guess Biden is still either building the wall. He's, yeah, he's or, building the wall fully so, now. Um, Suspending 25 federal laws to build the wall. There you are. So, you know, for all the controversy about the wall, it's a, it's now the, the Democrat position. Yeah. And I think it's a disingenuous argument argument, clearly lots of people will say that they care about democracy, but on an issue that the publics care about. The they tiny issue they, of who gets into the country, who becomes a citizen. Yeah. And it has, you know, it has serious economic impact as well. So people would like to portray it as simply kind of xenophobia. Oh, they just don't want foreign people. Actually, in the UK, 
there has been broad support generally for immigration. We've been a very successful multi-ethnic country in that sense. We've not seen, I mean, it's been quite a considerable demographic change. So something like nearly one in five people in the UK now are ethnic minorities, which is a substantial shift over the last 60, 70 years. And it's been done largely without violence. It's not been a major kind of dividing line in the country. But... And I'm, you know, I think immigration can be a very good thing for the economy as well. And more, all modern developed economies need immigration, but it also can have diminishing returns. It can also have different effects on different parts of the population. People who are low skilled coming in will be competing for work and will be depressing wages for other low skilled people in the UK. Often, by the way, ethnic minorities who came a generation previously. So those kind of nuances about immigration and the effect that they have, uh, what it does for, uh, uh, you know, if you if you have lots of low-skilled immigration in the UK, it can be very good at, uh, at supporting the growth of certain industries, but it also means that businesses are less likely to invest in skills and training the domestic workforce. Uh, it might mean that they invest less in things like robotics and automation because it's always cheaper to hire someone than to buy expensive machinery. So there are, these are all things which an intelligent national conversation about immigration should have. And yet sometimes, and this happened in the Brexit campaign, it was, well, this side is xenophobic because they don't want immigrants and uh, they're racist. And this is just a, a desire to return to the British empire uh, of white superiority. And that was such a ludicrous caricature for lots of the people who were arguing in favour of, of leaving the EU. And it continues to play out that way amongst some people that, you know, when you talk about immigration, it's seen as a kind of cultural reaction rather than something considered and thoughtful. We, we do have very large scale immigration in the UK right now. There are very good reasons for that in the sense of we, we had a, after the pandemic, lots of people uh, left the workforce for reasons of ill health or they'd just got to a, a certain age and they, they decided they wanted to retire early. And we've also taken in very large numbers of people from Hong Kong because of the, the visa that we offered um, and Ukraine and, and Afghanistan after the conflicts there. So there ha you know, there's been a big increase. There's also been a big increase in workers in the health system. But in general, the public would want and expect the UK government under democratic, with a democratic mandate to reduce numbers over time. And that's been a fairly consistent message. So I think, you know, all governments have to listen to that to some extent and try and, I guess, discuss it in a sort of sensible way. And instead, what happens is, as I say, this kind of caricature of you can't say that because that would make you a, a racist in some way. Or even worse, it's just ignored and people don't want to talk about it. So we were talking a little bit about um, universities earlier and the political culture and how leaders at universities often fail to strike the right notes around free speech and so forth. In 2020, so many universities made statements about George Floyd, about Black Lives Matter and so forth. And many people have pointed out that they have now run into a bit of a problem with the outbreak of war between Israel and Hamas after Hamas's uh, you know, slaughtering of 1,400 Israeli uh, mostly civilians. They've backed themselves into something of a corner in America, at least, and I assume in, in the UK as well, where they're now expected to make statements about any significant global political event. Because, you you know, silence was violence in 2020. So now if I were Jewish, I could go to my university and say, si you said silence is violence. 1,400 people in Israel were slaughtered mercilessly. You can't stay silent. You have to, you have to make a statement. On the other hand, they're going to have lots of pro-Palestinian student groups, faculty, 
that have been faculty that have been hired over the years, that some of which are almost explicitly pro-Hamas in some cases that are very much not going to want them to make a pro-Israel statement of any kind or or even a, a statement of sympathy for Israel. And now what do they do, right? Do they make the statement that the the Jewish student group is going to want them to make? Or do they make the statement that the uh, BDS, pro-Palestine student uh, students are going to make them want to make it? Or do they say nothing, in which case the Jewish student group is going to very much notice? And in some way, this, uh, this just shows the bind that they've the, the corner they painted themselves into, but also uh, you, you actually wrote a piece about Israel-Hamas war and Iran's role in this. And, and so maybe can you give me a little bit of how you are viewing the conflict right now in, in general? Well, on the conflict, uh, so one event that was formative in my political thinking was 9-11. That's for many people. And then the terrorist bombings in London in 2005, which were on the London Transport Network. And what was shocking to me at the time was that these were effectively homegrown terrorists, these people who'd grown up in Britain. And the arguments at the time were this is, you know, these are people who've been oppressed or people who have uh, suffered injustice or don't have education. And actually, when you looked at the background of the London terrorists, that was not the case. They were actually quite educated, had grown up in Britain, had been westernized, actually. And they had been radicalized by an ideology which has swept through large parts of the world and has come to the West and in some ways is a is partly a creation of the West because it goes back to this idea of a kind of grievance narrative and large, a large part of radical Islamism is rooted in this idea that Muslims are victimised in the world by the West. It's very different to Muslim, Islam as a religion, to Muslims. So I grew up in a Muslim household and uh, I identify as, as Muslim culturally and I'm very proud of that. And it's a, you know, it is one of the great faiths of history and it is practised peacefully by billions of people around the world. Islamism, the radical form of it, which is highly political, and sometimes takes a very violent and extreme form with Hamas and and ISIS, is a particularly pernicious and, I would say, worldview, which is uh, highly anti-Semitic. It does not allow for tolerance of other religions. And uh, it has, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, is the ideology and worldview of Hamas. And I wrote the article because I wanted to point out that people understandably will be sympathetic towards Palestinians and particularly those suffering in Gaza because it has been a terrible uh, situation. But the desire to see this amongst Hamas supporters, but also just generally, I think, in the West and particularly on the political left as good versus evil, Israel is the oppressor, the Palestinians as the victims, is far too simplistic. And what people often miss is that the the funders of Hamas, Iran, but also just generally the, the countries like the Gulf states that have funded Islamism through mosques and through literature that has spread around the world, those countries are actually quite wealthy and they've been amassing power. And in the case of Iran, have been oppressing their own people, particularly women, And the kind of left liberals who have been supporting female human rights campaigners in Iran, who are then at the same time supporting Hamas, which has the same ideology, which is just as violent uh, as we've seen, that somehow they have they have suddenly become heroes of some kind. It doesn't. It's not consistent at all. And uh, you know, so I think the conflict is reduced to this very simplistic and crude 
view that Israel is is a unique evil and the Palestinians are, I mean, they are victims, but the idea that it's all on one side, uh, I just think is, is, is both inaccurate and it's historically uh, inaccurate. It's, it's not looking at the, the full picture. But, you know, there, there is a, a kind of, I guess, a, a relationship or a family connection between that, that Islamist Hamas worldview and to some extent the kind of grievance culture and I mean obviously it's not violent in the same way in in, in the West but that idea that there are some groups that are so victimised that they're almost justified in doing anything uh, and that I, I think is something we should challenge. And I think many Muslims would also agree with that, even if they're too afraid to say it. Why don't you see more Muslim voices attacking Hamas? It's pretty clear to me, because if you're seen as an apostate, you put yourself in the firing line. And and even I've had some experiences with this. I've criticised Islamist thinking and and groups. And you do get targeted. You do get, you know, you're you're, you're at risk. And so it's, you're not going to hear as much diversity of opinion from the Muslim, the wider Muslim population for that reason, because there's a kind of censorship going on. Right. And, and I mean, we know from the examples of really the most famous and outspoken apostates from Islam that even if the even if a good majority of Muslims worldwide does don't think anything bad should happen to Salman Rushdie or Ayan Hirsi Ali, enough do, and they're powerful enough that they would they will hunt you down for twenty years. And if you're like Salman Rushdie, they may eventually get you. And that that create that has to create a massive chilling effect in the global Muslim community. Yeah. In fact, just going back to the point about artists, I know. One very prominent artist in Britain who said to me privately, well, you know, I just can't do anything about Islam. I'd love to. I'd love to, to produce some artwork about it, but I'm just too scared. And, you know, that's not talked about at all. Yeah, I think many people have this picture of Hamas as, you know, they're just behaving the way any group would behave if they were freedom fighters fighting for a people they perceive as being, uh, having been displaced by colonizers, essentially. And I think... I just had this guy, Yusef Munair, on my podcast, and we kind of debated this this issue. You know, he's saying Hamas is just behaving the way any any people would behave. If Brazilians came into historic Palestine and started displacing people, Hamas would be behaving the same way, or any group of people would be fighting in, in this way. And I think, I don't think that's true. I think that Hamas, you know, as you say, first of all, I think they really believe what they say they believe in their charter. I think, you know, the the quotes they have about having to kill Jews and wage, wage jihad on Jews as the worst kind of infidel, I think they really believe that. And I think that when they say that they admire, you know, Saladin, who took Palestine back from the Christians after the Crusades, I think they see themselves like that. They, they, they really want to wipe Israel off the map. I don't think it is about the settlements in the West Bank, although that certainly does not help the situation vis-a-vis Palestinian outrage. But fundamentally, I think it's about, for Hamas, it's about the fact that there is a Jewish state of any size on Muslim, what should be Muslim land. And until, I think fundamentally, until the Jews of Israel pack up and leave, Hamas will not be happy. And they will be, they will fight and they don't observe the difference between combatants and non-combatants because that's, I think they're true believers, right? They're not, the, the verses of the Quran that they interpret literally with respect to jihad does not distinguish between 
it says Jews, right? It says fight the Jews. It doesn't say fight the IDF. And I think they really believe that stuff. You know, and I, uh, as I said, I, you know, grown up in a Muslim context and, and I, I understand that Muslims will be sympathetic naturally towards Palestinians. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't defend everything Israel has done historically in the area. I'm sure that, you know, there's, there's lots that can be said on that. So I don't think, I, you know, I think, I think you need to recognize the, the specific actions on, on both sides. But there are certain things that are not often talked about, and, and particularly in the more kind of extreme parts of Muslim opinion on this issue. So in that period when, when Israel was created, first of all, Jews do have a historic link to the place. There is this sort of effort almost to act like they just arrived uh, at the beginning of the 20th century and started settling as if there, were, there, wasn't, there weren't Jewish communities there previously. There were. And in the creation of Israel, there was a, a UN plan for partition and for, for, for two states. And it was the Arab countries that didn't accept that. And in that period after the war, lots of countries were being reorganized, redrawn. The whole map of Europe was redrawn. Millions of people were leaving parts of Eastern Europe and finding new homes. So in that context, Israel and Palestine was just one of many, many acts of removal and displacement. And in fact, interestingly, in America, Zionism was very much a left-wing phenomenon. The left, Martin Luther King was a Zionist, and they believed that it was right that the Jews who had been victims of the Holocaust, who clearly could not return to their homes where they had been, uh, their families had been massacred, needed somewhere to go. And there was a, 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 an obvious solution to them, which was to go to the, the place in Palestine where they had historically come from, where there were already communities. So for many people on the left in America and in the UK, Zionism was seen as a progressive project, something for, for justice. When Israel was created and when they, they faced this conflict, this the, the war of independence, and the Arab states invaded. Many Jews were also displaced from Arab countries. So it's, a, again, there's a kind of convenient forgetting of the fact that if you go to Arab countries, there are very, very small Jewish populations, if any. Most of them were expelled and they don't have a right to return. So uh, if you believe that Israel has a right to exist, the Jewish people have a right to a state, and you believe that they have a right to defend it, then I think it's it's important to recognise that Hamas does not believe that and they are posing a threat. And whilst you can be sympathetic to the situation the Palestinian people are in, I think they're more oppressed by Hamas, the, the government of that, that area, than you would know from reading a lot of the Western press today. So it's a, it's a really complicated situation. And I think the way in which Israel and Palestine have become this cause celebre on the left is probably says more about the left in the West than it does about what's actually going on on the ground and the kind of conflict that's being played out. And I think it is, it's shocking that people think that those actions by Hamas, and, you know, they're still ongoing, you know, the time of recording, there are still hostages being kept. And, uh, you know, Hamas is not releasing them in large numbers, even though they're now, you know, the, the, the people that are supposedly in charge of and looking after are facing strikes and so on. They could release those hostages. They could try and move towards discussion, but they're not doing that. So I think just more balanced coverage is fair. What should universities do? What should institutions do? I think you're right. I think they've walked themselves into a corner because students are now so habituated to the idea that a university will come out and support their, their political campaign 
that they can't understand that actually universities might have to step back and just be impartial and say, we're not going to have an opinion on this. We're not going to state a position. I think it's perfectly fine and reasonable if a university wants to express horror at the particular acts that took place uh, on that day, on October the 7th. And fair enough. But to get involved in political, uh, getting choosing one political side over another, I think is high risk. And, and you know, that, that, that's, um, that's something now that, that students have got used to. Yeah, I'm going to pick up on that last point you made. I think it's totally valid and important for people to talk about how much the people of Gaza are suffering. What gets missed is how much of that suffering is directly due to Hamas, right? Like they, they, they have had, Hamas has had over 15 years to improve life for their people, right? And they've gotten just billions and billions of dollars from the world to do just that. And rather than rather than do, you know, make their uh, make Gaza's water infrastructure great, their desalination systems great, their infrastructure, just raising the standard of living. They funneled almost all of that money into attacking Israel as much as possible. They've even they have they've propaganda videos of digging up water pipes, digging up water pipes that were donated by the European Union at great expense filling them with fertilizer and explosive cocktails and making rockets out of them. I mean, this is, um, this is insane. This is, not, this is not a party that cares at all about their own people. And they're very explicit about this. They are on camera saying that they use the human shield method. And the reason that they do this is, is I, I believe, twofold. One, because it creates very good propaganda for the West, because in, in the West, we're very sensitive appropriately to the problem of civilians being killed in war. And so the more Gazans are killed by Israeli airstrikes, the worse Israel looks and the better Hamas looks by comparison. And then secondly, for the true believers among Hamas, anyone killed in the fight against infidels goes straight to heaven. So if, insofar as you really believe that, it bypasses the natural sympathy you may have for at the, at the site of um, a, a dead family that you prevented from leaving prior to an Israeli airstrike, right? If you really believe they're in heaven, then of course you don't feel bad, right? So this is, this is what Israel is up against. And I think it's very important that we are clear about what the enemy, meaning Hamas in this case, you know, what their character and what their beliefs really are. It was understood when ISIS were active and were actually running territory that they had a particular ideology and they were prepared to sacrifice human life. And I think, you know, people across the left and the right were fairly united on how horrendous that was. And ISIS had very little, if any, support amongst what the general Muslim population. People could see it was terrible. In the context of the uh, of Gaza and, and what's happening in Palestine, it's almost like that's all forgiven because this is a different kind of conflict and therefore those actions and that behaviour is justified in some way. And what people don't see is the degree of repression, even within Gaza, of journalists, of people who speak out. If you are an ordinary Gazan person not connected to Hamas, not supporting them, are you really going to sacrifice your own life, the life of your family to try and resist? It's a small area. You don't have uh, any kind of power or control. And therefore, this is not a, uh, a democracy in any sense. It's, you know, they, they were elected 15 years ago, but you know, we have no sense of what support they, they have or not. And that is just not reported as much as it should be, I think. And it's, it's just simply blamed on Israel or it's Israel's fault. I mean, Israel withdrew from Gaza. It, it left infrastructure there. As you say, much of that was destroyed deliberately by Hamas. 
much of the money that went in went into building the tunnel networks so that they could operate. They do use human shields. I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking that people are suffering now. I completely, you know, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the Palestinian people there, just as, you know, there's a tragedy for, for the Israelis. But to not see the particular role that Hamas have played in orchestrating that tragedy is a kind of willful blindness because the the facts are obvious to me and to anyone looking at it dispassionately and and, and trying to make sense of it, I think. But Israel-Palestine occupies a particular place in the parts of the left and the parts of the Muslim world where it's it's a kind of, uh, it's become like the one thing that people feel they should have some moral certainty over and they like, they want a kind of good versus evil story. But as soon as you start looking at the facts, I think it's just very hard to sustain that. Okay, before I let you go, can you talk a little bit about your your work at, at your, the Civic Center and um, point my audience in that direction? Uh, so Civic Future, which yeah. is the, the charity I set up a year ago. We, so we're not party political, but we were interested in the, and we're grounded in the values of, of liberal democracy, which we've talked about a lot today. And our aim is to try and encourage more good people to go into public life and to prepare them for, for working in roles in government, in representative politics. And I, I set it up partly because of my experience in government. I just, I felt that there were so many great people in Britain working in different sectors, working in business, working in tech, in the arts world, who should be going into politics, and yet they don't. And the quality of the people we have in politics I think I can be bold in saying this, but it's not good enough. And, you know, these are incredibly important roles. We should have the best people. And yet there's some kind of mismatch going on in society. And even when good people do go into those roles, we don't train them, we don't prepare them, both in the kind of technical know-how of of government and uh, some of the the challenges around things like the economy and and, uh, dealing with environmental concerns, but also just core political philosophy. You know, why do we have the system we do? What are the dilemmas and challenges around freedom versus equality, individuals and communities? You know, these are the kinds of things that you would want people at the highest level of government to have given some thought to. And yet we're really complacent about preparing people, I think, for for those kinds of roles. So so we run fellowship programs, we run events, you know, um, conferences like the one that that you came to, we we do lots of those. And, you know, we're trying to build a network of people who care about politics and who care about these issues and who can come together. And, you know, core to, to our belief is that free speech and freedom of expression and being able to discuss and disagree well is really important in politics. So we're almost trying to avoid the the trap that I think a lot of universities have fallen into, which is to, to sort of police debate and almost allow a degree of censorship. We want to change that so that not so that people can say outrageous things for the sake of it, but that they can explore and, and test things. And uh, so, yeah, we're fairly new, but we're growing. That's awesome. All right, Munir Mirza, thanks so Thank much for you. coming on my show. Been great. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.